please remain standing for the reading of God's word out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word. At the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond. Thanks be to God. The scripture this morning comes from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Brandon. I'm a member here at the King's Church, and it's uh, my joy to open God's Word today with you as we look at Psalm 2. Now, if you've been with us the past couple months, you know we've been working through a series in Isaiah that led us up and through uh, Christmas and our Christmas Eve service. And so this morning, my, my job is to open Psalm 2, kind of do a one-off sermon, and uh, my hope is that it will be helpful for us this morning. So I've titled this sermon, Rage and Refuge. Rage and refuge, and those are two relatively strong words. Um, there uh, is an easy temptation when you first hear them to dismiss them, to think, oh, that's not me, right? I don't rage, and I don't need refuge from anything in particular. However, these are two themes that we're going to see in Psalm 2 that are both, A, biblical, and B, applicable for us today. And so, while they might not be words that you use every single day, they do seem to conjure or bring up some images in our mind, don't they? I don't know where your mind goes when uh, you immediately hear them, but I can imagine some of the places. So when I hear the word rage, I think anger on fire, right? Maybe just using some word association, you think road rage, right? So you take someone uh, who's driving a vehicle, and they're just completely out of control. They've lost all reasonable sense of their emotions, and they're now willing to risk their lives and others uh, quite simply because they're upset. They lost their temper. Maybe someone cut them off. Refuge. Uh, refuge, the first thing that pops in my mind, are actually refugees. So if you've ever seen a refugee camp or maybe just seen a, uh, a photo of a refugee camp, you know they can be a, a quite shocking picture. See, no one chooses to be a refugee. No one decides to be a refugee, but they are forced in to being one. Refugees often come from 
uh, war-torn countries or places that are in complete distress and they've lost all safety, and so they're fleeing their homes in need of security. So we see both of these words in our psalm today that Andrew just read for us. And now while these examples, um, they might be uh, just two ideas, and you might have your own thoughts surrounding them, what I want to propose for us this morning is that these two ideas are much more applicable to us than we might initially think. Both rage and refuge are biblical concepts uh, that affect and touch each one of our lives in a personal way. So my main idea for us this morning is this, that the gospel invites us to turn from rage against God and take refuge in him. I'll say it one more time for us, that the gospel invites us to turn from rage against God and take refuge in him. And before we go any further, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word. Father, we come to you this morning as needy children, completely lost apart from you, prone to wander, prone to follow our own intuition, and prone to rage against you. I ask that you would guide my words this morning as we look at your word and point us uh, to your son, Jesus. We trust that as we look to your word, you will help us to see the truth in it and the reality it points to. So Father, may you be glorified in this place. May our satisfaction come in you alone. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So before going any further, let me go ahead and give you my outline for this morning. Uh, I think in, in Psalm 2, it's uh, just 12 texts or 12 verses, and uh, we're going to see four kind of natural movements in that text. And so it, it kind of just makes up one running thought, and it goes like this. Our sin is great, the Lord is greater. He has a plan, and he invites us in. So each section there uh, corresponds with a stanza uh, in, the, in the text. So you'll see four, four blocks of text. Um, there are three verses each. If you want to follow along in your Bible as we go, you can, or Bible app, or there will be some slides on the screen there for you. When we get to Psalm 2, it opens with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So as we begin, it may be valuable for us to consider that same question this morning. In its immediate context, ancient Israel would not be surprised by this, the reality of raging nations. They all knew and were acutely aware of where they lived and where they resided. There was an obvious enemy or rebel that was working against them. You see, the Israelites were surrounded by warring nations that wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. Yet the people of God, the Israelites, were called to be this beacon of light an outpost shining for his glory to the nations surrounding them. They were to be distinctly and uniquely designed to live in such a way that they actually attracted those nations um, and desired them to be more like them. Okay, So they were this beacon of light. Yet tragically, we know this didn't quite happen as planned, did it? As the people, were, people of God were surrounded by outside nations, instead of winsomely and convincingly converting those around them to follow the Lord, they instead became more and more like the surrounding pagan nations. This meant a drift and an abandonment 
from following the Lord in faith and obedience. So if we're honest with ourselves, this is a temptation that ne- that's never too far from our minds either, is it? We tend to think, oh, the grass is greener, or life will be better, or easier, or more fulfilling if it was just a little bit different, wouldn't it? This is a pull or a temptation to move away from God. In fact, it is a temptation to feed into the raging against God we see in this psalm. So for me, the challenge I have when reading Psalm 2 is I don't quickly or easily identify with the raging against the Lord and his anointed. But the reality is, anytime I sin, I'm participating in this conspiracy against him. Because of that, I would argue that rage means far more than the immediate thoughts that flood into your mind when you first hear the word. While those extreme examples do paint a picture, they don't paint it in 3D. They give you one shade of color, but not full HD with its depth and nuance. What I think is a little more challenging for us to see is how underneath, we all have this impulse and inclination to rage against God. Now, before you dismiss that concept, I want you to contemplate the effects of even a little bit of sin in your life. See, sin is an infinitely more offensive way to rage against a holy and just God. Sin, by its very nature, is disconnect and disorder. It offends and ostracizes. A little sin causes complete separation from God. Separation from God leads to every other issue and problem we see and experience in our world. So, when I say rage, don't get it twisted. You rage. I rage. And our world is broken because of it. James 1 is is helpful for us. It says it like this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So our next observation we see at the beginning of this psalm is that there are two groups or two parties involved. There are those who rage against God, and then there's actually God himself, and there's no neutral in between those. On the one side, the kings and rulers are taking counsel. On the other side, we have a Trinitarian God perfectly communing together. We see that communal God at the end of verse 2. The word anointed is transliterated or translated as Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in the Greek At the very least, that's two figures, but I would argue three with the Holy Spirit uh, acting as well, giving us the perfect picture of community. See, community is powerful, and not all communities are equally good, are they? Like a young man who goes into jail for a petty crime and comes out a seasoned and professional criminal, the compounding effects of sin seem to be multiplied here in this psalm, from thoughts and feelings to discussions and now actions and future plans of bursting their bonds and casting away the cords of God, things have escalated. 
That seems to be how sin works in our own lives too, isn't it? But sin is far worse than we think. It affects more than just ourselves. It affects God's world and it affects others who inhabit it. One temptation for us is to think that breaking the shackles and chains which hold us back will free us for good and finally release us from these overbearing restrictions of a tyrannical God. Yet what we don't realize is that what we think are shackles chaining us to God are acting more like a kite string, keeping us flying in the wind. And as our desire to fly higher rises, we might be tempted to cut the string, thinking that will allow us to reach our full potential and truly be free, right? But the reality is, if you've ever flown a kite, if you cut that string, you might fly high for a moment, you might soar around wildly, but shortly after, its fate will be a broken hip heap of sticks and string on the ground. Family, our sin, our rage against God is great. One Bible commentator, Michael Wilcock, puts it this way. It is not just the political powers of this world which have no desire to be ruled by him. There is scarcely a commercial or intellectual or cultural interest anywhere on earth which would not resent his claims to it. So our second, second point this morning, our sin is great, but the Lord is greater. Would you look at verse 4 with me? It says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So the word derision there. Uh, simply means to mock or ridicule. So this laughter that we see is the laughter of an all-powerful God who is sitting calmly in the heavens laughing. He is in complete control despite the plans against him. He is not threatened. He is infinitely more powerful than us, and he knows it. So when I was little, I remember um, wrestling with my dad, trying my hardest uh, to beat him, and him just kind of laughing, right? It didn't matter how hard I tried, how much I strove, and how much effort I gave, even if I came up with a better plan, didn't matter. I would never be able to pin him. He knew it. One quick just lift of his arm, he could just pick me up and toss me aside. And so from the outside looking in, this is, this is probably pretty cute, but it was never a real competition. My father had a better understanding of what was really happening in that instance than I did. Needless to say, I never succeeded in pinning him or beating him. He's still undefeated to this day. But uh, our God sits in the heavens and laughs like this. Our God also has full authority. He is both Yahweh, which we see with the all capitals, all capital letters translated Lord in your Bible, and Adonai, which we see with only the, the capital L there. These names point to um, his reality. Okay, so he is creator, he is all-powerful one, and yet he is also personal. He is master, he is king. So God's authority um, doesn't just stop there. He uh, who has authority, has the ability to act on it. We see this in verse 6. 
It says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is a setting in the past tense, as in, as soon as he said it, it was accomplished. Yet for the psalmist here, he would have surely known that this was a future event. Think about it. For the Jewish people, it was this promise of or from God that they were waiting for. Yet he says it here as sure as it is done. So the question lingering still to be answered is, how would the Messiah who was to come also rule as king? This brings us to our third section or our third movement in the text this morning, that God has a plan. God has a plan. We see this in verses 6 and 7. They're kind of the pivotal point, if you will, or the hinge on which this psalm begins to make the Lord's plan more clear. In verse 7, we see God talking, except this time it is it's the king or the anointed one doing the talking. He declares, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. So this is a little bit of an unexpected twist here. For God promised to bring forth from David a king who would rule and conquer, yet here we're told that this multifaceted king would rule and conquer, or I'm sorry, would, would not only be David's heir, but he would also be the son of God. So what I would put forth to you today, and I would argue that the New Testament makes an argument for, is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king. He is the son. He is the anointed Christ in Psalm 2 that we see here. This verse is quoted um, three times directly that, that I saw in the New Testament. It might be quoted more, but um, they, they are making the same claim for us. So you see it in Hebrews 5. I'll just read these for us. Hebrews 5.5. 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Acts 13.33 says, This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then finally in Romans 1.4, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So let me say it as plainly as, as I can. God had a plan. His plan was Jesus. And when we see this figure at work in Psalm 2, we can confidently know it was and is Jesus Christ as Lord. That plan in Psalm 2 is still at work today. His sovereignty over his plan includes how he is building his kingdom, redeeming his world, and affecting all of us, his people. So Paul, building off this theme of pots and clay, put it this way in his letter to the Romans. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for our glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The Lord is still at work today. This brings us to our final point, our final movement in the text this morning, and, and my final point in our, in our message so we'll hang out here for, for the rest of our time this morning. So at the beginning, I'm sorry, uh, this, this point is that he is, inviting, he is inviting us in. So at the beginning of the psalm, we saw it was a people raging against God on one hand and God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the other hand. These were the two groups. They were alienated and separated from each other. That leaves us wondering, how can they ever be reconciled? How can raging people turn to find refuge in the same one they're raging against? The last stanza, so the last three verses of the psalm, hints at the answer. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So I'm not sure about you, but anytime I see clear commands in the Bible, my temptation, which in some ways is a good impulse, is to take them at face value and muster up strength and just go ahead and do them, right? That's a good impulse, but it's an impossible one. We ought to try and do what the Bible says to do. But look closely at these words. Serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. How on earth do we do that? Seems even our best effort will fall short and either be heavy on the service and light on the fear, leading us to exalt ourselves and glorify ourselves. Or maybe you're light on service and heavy on fear. That leads to debilitating inactivity. There's a natural tension between these phrases. And as we're contemplating our invitation, let's not forget whose story this is, whose plan it is. Our temptation in reading and in most of our life in general is to make ourselves the main character. But let's establish right up front, we've already said it, it's not our plan. It's the Lord's. It's his world. He is the one inviting us in, not the other way around. He doesn't need us, but we desperately need him don't we? That means our invitation, in it, it's worth focusing on the one who is doing the inviting and a little less on the ones being invited. Our God, he is Yahweh, right? He is the all-powerful one, the all-knowing, the all-capable God, the one who has no beginning, no end, the one who created the heavens, the earth, the one who spoke galaxies into existence, who breathed life into man, who fashioned him out of dust, and to dust he will go again. He is the one who had built cities and nations and uh, confused the languages at the Tower of Babel. He is the one who flooded the earth in the time of Noah. He is the one who revealed himself to men, who spoke to the prophets, and who has kept his word preserved for us today. He is the one who has, the only one who has, conquered sin 
and death. He's the one sitting in the heavens and laughing. So we serve and worship a powerful God. So serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. This God in all his power, right, the all-powerful one, is also good. And that's good news for us. This is the good king, the good shepherd, the father who tenderly loves and cares for his children, the master who meets us in our weakness with grace, the merciful one who is patient with our stubbornness. He's not only powerful but good, right, church? So serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Our invitation is an invitation to do so, and to do so as a humble act of worship, out of thankfulness to the one who is inviting us in. Philippians 2 is helpful for us here. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who, is, who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Just two chapters later, uh, the Apostle Paul is helpful for us again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The invitation into God's plan is into his grand story is actually in Jesus Christ. His gospel is the only thing that has the power to unite sinners to a holy God. Jesus himself says this in John 14. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the invitation is there to all. Are you willing to respond to it this morning? In our last verse of our psalm, this invitation is made even more explicit. It says this, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So to kiss the son uh, is to pay homage to him. In biblical times, this was done to show allegiance. When Saul became the first king of Israel, we saw the prophet of God anointed him and gave him a holy kiss. This was both a kiss of fellowship and a kiss of honor. Now here in Psalm 2, we're again told to kiss the son, to pay homage to him, to join him. This only happens for us, family, by the grace of God opening our eyes to see and our ears to hear the good news of the gospel, to respond in repentance and faith. This is a turning of rage against your enemy to join forces with him, to lay down your weapons and surrender and yield to him, to join his kingdom. This is an invitation to say, Jesus is Lord, and to do so joyfully. So this morning, again, I'm going to ask you this directly. Have you done that? If so, it ought to be affecting your life in an ongoing way. And so I want to look at 
just three of those ways uh, quickly this morning. This will be a little bit of application for us, and then we'll be done. So first, if Jesus is Lord, our identity is in him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The old man has passed away. The new man has been born. For those of us who call ourselves Christians and have put our faith in him, our primary identity also ought to be in him. That means it supersedes ethnicity and nationality, marital status and how many kids you have, how much education you have or don't have, what you do for work and what you do for fun. No, Christians are marked by our primary identity in Christ. We are in him because he's in us. We can't escape that reality and nor should we want to. It ought to mark us and it is a beautiful identity. Secondly, if Jesus is Lord, we're part of a distinct community. Again, this is an unavoidable reality for us in the scriptures, uh, but there are no standalone Christians. Oh, it's just me and my Bible, right? Me and God, and we got a personal relationship, and I would be going to church, but I don't want those people to mess up the good thing I got going on with God, right? No, we are an adopted people. We have been adopted by grace through faith into a family, an eternal family, no doubt, but one that is lived out in part here and now in a specific place and a specific time. If Jesus is Lord, it ought to affect how we view the local church. So take a moment right now, look to your left, look to your right. If that makes you uncomfortable, you can just look right up at me. We are brothers and sisters, you will surely fail. <laughs> I will surely fail. We will surely sin, but in God's providence and in his grace, he did not intend for us to stumble through life alone. The church is his plan and his gift to us. Lastly, if Jesus is Lord, we ought to have a distinctly Christian lifestyle. So for me, I know this is the most challenging of the three. Our affections are for the Lord, and yet sin still lingers close, doesn't it? Paul says this in Romans, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. This is our experience still, isn't it? But the Lordship of Jesus does not have boundaries. It extends and affects every area of our lives. It affects your politics, your money, our view of sexuality, our career choices, where we choose to live, our hobbies, our hopes, and our dreams. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. When Jesus is Lord, it can't, we cannot help but submit our lifestyle to him. Those won't necessarily be easy choices or decisions to make. We will struggle our way through them, but the one who gives us faith will see it through. Tangibly, the Holy Spirit is there helping us in our weakness, persevering our faith through doubts and sin to sanctify us and developing a distinctly Christian lifestyle. To take refuge, as the psalm says in the Lord, changes you. 
It requires you to recognize your rage and lay it aside. To the world, that may seem foolish. It may seem too good to be true. And there is a great mystery involved that all of those who raged against God are now invited to take refuge in him. We are invited to repent and believe and join him. Just like that. A free offering of infinite value. And no doubt, it is a scandalous offer. It is an offer, an invitation that is extended to all without exception. So we'll, we'll close like this. Tim Keller summarizes this psalm uh, this way, probably better than I could, so we'll just read it. God's response to human pride and power is to install his son on Zion. This points beyond Israel's king to Jesus, God's true son. One day he will put everything right, but he will do this by going first to Zion, to Jerusalem, to die for our sins, to kiss his son is to rest in and to live for him. If we do this, we have assurance that no matter what happens to us, ultimately, everything will be all right. If we don't live for him, we end up fighting God himself. So there is no refuge from him, only in him. Family, will you be willing to turn from your rage and take refuge in the Lord today? Our sin is great. Our Lord is greater. He has a plan. He has invited us in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that through your son Jesus, we're invited into your plan. That you lay down your life for us so that we might lay down our rage and take refuge in you. As you work in our hearts and minds, would you let this reality rest on all of us here this morning? Would we humbly lay down our lives and joyfully worship you as king? We thank you for the grace to do so. And in Christ's name, we pray. Amen.